So we are currently going through a series called God's Great Plan. We're looking at the book of Ephesians. Um, For those who are with us today for the first time, or for the youth who are joining us, having normally your own youth service, I just want to say, if if I refer to stuff earlier on in Ephesians, there's some great talks, they're all online. Um, For students who are going away, uh, many of you next week and uh, and so on, you you get to listen to the Spiritual Battle ones on podcast as well. So um, it's all there on the website. Do make use of it. It's a good resource. But so here we are at the end of Ephesians. We've been on um, sort of quite a journey through the plan of salvation and how that works in the church and what that means to live it out. And here we come to chapter six. And it might seem like a bit of a detour, like, you know, Paul's kind of gone, okay, here's salvation and here's the church. I'm just, just going to say this bit at the end about the armor of God. But actually, that isn't what it's like. It's not a break from the rest of the letter. So just brief in summary, Ephesians 1 and 2, what Christ has done is the main focus. What has Christ done? And then it goes on to Christ making one united church that crosses all barriers. Then we go on into, you know, chapters 4 and 5. How does that church grow? How does that church mature? How does that church hold together and show genuine love? And then we get to chapter 6, which is how does that church stand against opposition? Okay, it does flow. We've gone through God's work leading to the foundation of the church, the unity of the church, and now, how does that church stand? Um, Some of you will know phrases we'll get to in a second when we read the passage, but the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, these aren't just abstract things that Paul's conjuring out of nowhere. These These are things he's referred to already. He's talked about what the truth is and how knowing that truth about God's love gives us power to overcome. He's talked about the righteousness that comes by faith. He's explained what that is. And when he says the helmet of salvation, he's just talked about what salvation is as well. It's the fact that we can't do it on our own, um, but that God saves us and rescues us himself by grace, not because we've earned it. So he's, he's named these things already. And then he says, okay, now you need to put them on, guys. You need to live in the good of them. So that's one reason why it follows on. The other reason why it follows on <coughs> is if, we, if you look at what Jesus teaches in, in Matthew 12, um, he's accused of, of driving out demons because he himself is um, possessed by demons. And he says, no, if, if Satan casts out Satan, how on earth will his kingdom stand? Division weakens a kingdom. And actually part of Satan's schemes is to sow disorder and division. So having said, you know, you need to stand and be unified, actually part of that is because you need to be able to stand together and stand firm together when there's opposition. So there is a natural flow through from being unified into living in the good of that and standing. And I also want to say that the whole book of Ephesians has this flavor throughout it of seeing things as they truly are. If you really see the goodness of God's love, oh my word, won't you live differently? If you really see that you're seated in heavenly places with Christ, doesn't that affect your prayer life? And we get today to see if we really see what God's mighty power is like. Well, that will make a difference, won't it? So, here we go. Finally, this is Ephesians 6. If you want to grab a Bible and open it, that's a good thing to do. Um, Ephesians 6, we're starting at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, I'm going to pause there for a start, because this, we could, we could just see this as an intro sentence. This is not an intro sentence. What he's about to say is not a pep talk. 
So it's not him getting up the front saying, come on, guys, we can do it. I spoke to somebody um, who used to work in, you know, those tele, not tele sales, um, on the street sales where they sell you talk talk contracts or, uh, you know, mobile phone stuff on the streets and they get you to sign up there and then. I spoke to somebody who, who did that as a living and he said what they had to do, because they were going to be getting out on the street and facing people just rejecting them all the time and they had to be enthusiastic about it, they would put on loud music for half an hour, they would walk around with this loud music on, giving each other high fives and telling each other how great they were. And then they'd go out full of that on the streets. And that would get them through a day of, you know, of, of marketing on the streets. I don't know if that's what the, uh, the charity people do as well before they go out and, and get you to sign up to Amnesty International or whatever it might be. But this is not that. This is not, oh, guys, aren't you great? Brilliant. We're going to feel... This is be strong in the Lord's and in his mighty power. And it's worth remembering that for the Ephesians, they know what that looks like. The book of Acts gives us some examples of Paul's ministry in different places. And Acts 19 is where Paul is in Ephesus. And we read this, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. What kind of mighty power is that? Now, we know there's nothing special about the hanky. God just wants to show that it came from Paul because he wanted it to be attributed to Jesus Christ's power. But what kind of God can go, oh, yeah, that hanky, that touched that person. It's gone. Just like that. That's the mighty power that these Ephesians have seen at work. So when Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, they've seen it. Now, that may not be quite so much our experience. We don't, all of us, see those kind of sort of obvious, instant miracles all the time. And actually, you know, maybe there's something more for us to grow and step up into there because God hasn't changed. But we do see them. Um, there was, a, <laughs> there was a, a couple in the church for many, many years here, um, Adrian and Ruth Watson. Many of you know that he was called the, the miracle man because of the miraculous recovery he made from a, an extremely serious head injury when he was in a car crash. Um, some of you will have heard me share a story of a colleague of Caroline's um, who had a diffuse axonal disorder when she had been in a car crash. They thought that she would never come out of her vegetative state and she was fully healed because of a word God spoke. There's power still in the name of Jesus. There's another power at work as well, isn't there? And the Ephesians get to see this too. You see, in the very next part of Acts 19 after that, you get, there's obviously a bit of an upswell of like, oh, you know, God's doing some stuff. And these, these seven sons of a Jewish priest called Sceva, they get this into their heads that, oh, you know, there's this power associated with Paul. And they go around casting out demons saying, in the name of Paul, oh, so Jesus, who Paul preaches, come out. We don't know whether that worked initially, but certainly what we read about is an instance in which they try to take on this man who's clearly possessed by an evil spirit, and they say, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, come out. And he says, well, I know Jesus and I know Paul. Who are you? And then he overpowers seven of them and gives them such a beating that they run out of the house without their clothes. There's another power at work, and the Ephesians know that as well. And we need to see things as they are. I said at the beginning, Ephesians is a call to see things as they are. There's a mighty power of Jesus Christ that can just heal like that that can cast out an evil spirit like that. But there is another evil power. There's another power, an evil power in the world. And we need to see that for what it is as well. And this passage is a call up to see both. 
we can be quite blind to it. The, one of the first experiences I had of um, doing, doing mission, if you like, back when I thought of it like that, perhaps, um, was a week down in, uh, in Newquay. A friend of mine had put together this surf mission, mainly working among surfers. Um, I went on a street team. We were going around pubs and clubs at kicking out time, um, talking to people about Jesus, offering to pray for people. Uh, but they also had a drop-in center that was run by the Sally Army in Newquay. And I remember this one guy coming in, and it was like when he came in, it was like this black cloud came in with him. And, you know, I've, I've, I've met people who are currently high on drugs, and, you know, they, they can talk in very odd ways and say things that you don't understand. But this guy wasn't just doing that. There was more to it. And the words that he spoke, he, sometimes he'd kind of break down into snarling, and, and he would call himself all kinds of, of names. And, and there was this black cloud that came into the place with him. And I just remember chatting to one of the guys who was, who was heading up the team, and he was like, oh, no, 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 he's, he's, he's just on drugs. Don't worry about it. I was like, no, there's something more. We need to see it for what it is. A bunch of us just got down and prayed. <laughs> um, and actually, in the end, he just got up and walked out, and that was perhaps what the best result was there and then. But we need to have our eyes open to what's really going on um, in the world. There's not just a broken world. There's also an evil power at work. And so Paul says this. Oh, that was, there you are. That's an artist's impression of the man beating up uh, Skaver's seven sons. Um, Paul says this. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are surrounded by a spiritual war. It doesn't look very much like it today, does it? You know, we, we get to be in this building without any visible opposition. Um, we can meet together freely. Uh, we can go and talk to people about what we want to talk to, by and large. And it may seem like actually that's all pretty much okay. But it's not the case. Now, I want to be clear about what I am and aren't saying. Let's start at the personal level, because we can over-spiritualize things as well. If you're out struggling to find a parking spot, that's probably not spiritual attack. Likewise, your man flu, guys, it's probably not the evil one. Probably. Um, on the other hand, we have noticed again and again that when we invite people on Alpha, what happens just the day before the Alpha course, that person who we've been praying for for years and who's finally said they'll come on the Alpha course, suddenly their kid gets sick and they can't come. It happens. I'm, those of you who wave a hand if you've run more than one alpha course. Okay, keep your hand up if you've seen that happen. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> it happens, doesn't it? We, we found consistently that the, day, the, the week before our student weekend away, always our kids get sick, every single time. And I think there's something in that. Um, I spoke to Sanjay, who was up here sharing earlier, about a friend of his who's um, working into a... Chinese language group where every person who has trained up in that specific language to go to speak to that people group about Jesus Christ has ended up coming back with life-threatening illness. There is a spiritual battle at work, and it works in us personally. Actually, I want to give you another example, though, because this week I have really battled with health. Um, I've really struggled. I, I was ill Tuesday. I didn't sleep Tuesday night. I was ill most of Wednesday. I managed to do two hours of work. I've been struggling to put together this talk. And I don't necessarily think that was spiritual attack, but I'll tell you what was, because when I was feeling ill, I started feeling sorry for myself, and I was despairing that I was going to be able to put together a decent talk, and I got lazy, and I thought, oh, I'll just watch an episode of The Grand Tour instead of preparing my sermon. Bit of insight into my life. But do you know what? That is spiritual attack. 
yes, there's, there's me in there as well. There's me and my sort of weakness, my propensity to laziness. But there's also that despairing voice that says, oh, you'll never put together anything good. You should just call somebody else and ask if they'll do it for you. That's spiritual attack. And we need to see it for what it is. So I just want to say briefly on this a word about mental health, because this question comes up a lot. Um, in the Gospels, Jesus interacts with a number of people who the Gospels describe as, as having a demon or an impure spirit. Sometimes he deals with people who are clearly suffering mentally, and it doesn't say that. People sometimes say, what's going on with that whole mental health versus the evil one? What's going on there? I wonder, who here does GCSE geography? I'm looking over towards youth. Any of you doing GCSE or A-level geography? No, okay. I'll I'll handle this one, because I think I remember this. Basically, I remember two things from GCSE geography. One of them was Oxbow Lakes, and the other one is Freeze Thaw. Okay, freeze thaw is the process by which rock, one process by which rocks get eroded. And what happens is that rocks with little cracks in them, the water gets into the cracks, and then when it freezes, water expands. And so it widens the crack, and then it melts again, and a little bit more water gets in, and the next time it freezes, it widens that crack, and then a bit more water gets in. I think that what goes on with the evil one and with mental health is a bit like that. There is a brokenness about us, and one of the ways that brokenness manifests itself is in poor mental health. I think that is a bit of an open open goal for the evil one. And he he gets in, and he works his way in, and then when he has his way, what does that do? Well, it widens that crack a bit more. And then there's a bit more brokenness, and into that he can work his way a bit more, and then that widens it a bit more. And that's, that's, I think, how those two things interact. There is a solution to that. It's not necessarily a quick fix, but there is a solution. Um, our kids had this thing called Fisher sealing. I don't know if most people have it these days, don't they? Where you, the fissures on your teeth, they kind of put some stuff in them so that the decay can't get in while they're still learning to brush their teeth. And, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit, he can do this. He can fill in that brokenness with his presence. And then the evil one doesn't get in, and then there's room for that to heal. There is an answer But I think we just need to be eyes open to the fact that there are two things at play. There is genuine mental health that is not just um, the evil one at work, but likewise, the evil one is at work. And there are some weak targets that he loves to pick off. Okay, that's a little bit about the evil one at work personally, perhaps. I want to think as well about on the larger scale, because we talk here about authorities and rulers, powers of this dark world. Um, I don't know if, like me, you've occasionally run into websites that say, the EU... The EU is the latest Antichrist, the empire of the Antichrist, and they show pictures of the EU Parliament building next to the Tower of Babel, and the fact that there's a woman riding a beast, it's actually Europa riding the bull, I think, outside their Parliament, and you can get right down that track and right into, you know, the EU is this, or if you're in the States, the Democratic Party is, you know, whatever it might be, there can be an over-caricaturing of it, and that is one thing to avoid. Um, On the other hand, we're also wrong to think that the evil one has not infiltrated every human structure that does not have Christ at the core of it. Every human endeavor. That's what we see right back at the Tower of Babel. Much worse than the fact that they sort of rather arrogantly were trying to build a tower to to reach down, you know, reach up to God. Much more than that was the fact that they had clubbed together to do something that had nothing to do with the Lord where God was not at the center of it, and they made this huge human endeavor that was all about being independent of God. And we should not dupe ourselves into thinking that does not happen at every level 
of human society in which God is not at the centre. I love this quote from Stanley Hauwas. Um, he says this, that which makes the church radical and forever new is not that the church tends to lean to the left on most social issues, but rather that the church knows Jesus, whereas the world does not. In the church's view, the political left is not noticeably more interesting than the political right. Both sides tend towards solutions that act as though the world has not ended and begun in Jesus. The real battle that's going on is not between socialism and capitalism. It's not between selfishness and generosity. The real battle that's going on is between Christ in his rightful place as king over the world and king over every heart and his kingdom being extended all over the world and the evil one who wants to oppose it. That's the real battle. And this is what Paul draws us back to in everything. The real battle that's going on is that one. So we do need to understand there are spiritual forces of evil at work. They can work at the personal level. They can work at the corporate level and the government level. And that can leave us possibly feeling a little bit overwhelmed because we've already seen with that thing of the seven sons of Sceva that people without gods are no match for the evil one. Thankfully, there is an answer and the answer is in Christ, because this is not an even battle. This is not, you know, your, what's it, yin and yang, isn't it? The, the, the balance of good and evil and, and light and dark in the, in the Buddhist philosophy. This is not some half and half even match. We learn from scripture that all of the spiritual forces, all of the spiritual powers were created by God. He's the one who's on the throne. He's the one who holds destiny and eternity in his hands. And he is not going to lose the battle it's very interesting at the beginning of the book of Job you see this depicted in Job where the devil has to come to God and ask permission to do something you know to put Job to the test he can't just do it he's given a limited scope he's allowed to to test and to try but he's under God's power and one day we know how that ends it's all in the book of Revelation among other places So Paul says, what should we do? Well, we trust in Christ. Colossians 2 says, while you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There's your answer. Jesus has triumphed already in the cross, triumphed over every power and authority, and made a public spectacle of them. So I'm going to summarize Paul's advice in three parts. Be strong in the Lord, be strong in his mighty power, and be strong together. Let's start with be strong in the Lord. This is what he says, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. This is the first thing and it it doesn't rely on us actually doing anything because the first part is to trust what God has done. Talks about the belt of truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the revelation 
of God. Yes, there's a call to us as well to, to live in truth, to tell the truth, but fundamentally, the truth is that Jesus has done it all. The truth is that he has adopted us as sons. The truth is he has made us a church. Talks about a breastplate of righteousness. That righteousness wasn't won by us. It wasn't achieved by us. It was achieved by Christ. And we get to, to take that on. We get to live with that breastplate of his righteousness on us. The helmet of salvation. We didn't save ourselves. Christ saved us. We get to be strong in the Lord because he has done it all. And he puts these things at our disposal. Yes, we have to put them on, by which I mean, we have to live in the good of them. But he's done it. He's done it all. If out of this we can just lift up our eyes and see a little more of, of how much Christ has done for us, that will be a really good thing because he has accomplished all of the hard stuff. The question that I have out of this is, what are the challenges where God is just calling you to stand? He's not asking you to go out and, and attack something or sort of find some great injustice and see it righted. That, there's another question about that later. But where are the things where God is just saying to you, look, I've given you what you need. Stand in the good of it. Your salvation isn't at risk. I've, I've, I've got it. <laughs> stand in the good of that. Yes, you're not good enough on your own, but I've made you righteous. Stand in the good of that. I want you to, to pause just a second and think what situations, what challenges are coming against you where you just need to stand. Just have, a, have 20 seconds just to think about that. Okay, secondly then. Oh, there you are, sorry. Belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. Those were three ones which Christ has already done for us. The second one, though, is be strong in his mighty power. Now, you might say, isn't that just the same thing? I want to say, not quite. We sang a song earlier about, you know, my weapon is a melody. That draws on a story from Israel's history in which a whole bunch of armies came against Israel and the king got really scared and you know, sort of poured himself out to God. And God says, don't worry, I've got it. And so they go out and they see these huge armies encamped against them. And God says, no, I've got it. And then this prophet stands up and says something really interesting. He says, don't worry, Israel, have faith in the Lord and you will be upheld. Okay, that's your standing strong in the Lord. Then he says, have faith in his prophets and you'll be successful. There's something of God saying, Look, I'm going I'm to uphold you, but there's also, there's, a, there's, there's something actively that I'm going to give you to do which will make you successful. And then, after that, they decide to put their worship leaders out at the front, like this morning. Slightly easier on a Sunday morning, perhaps, than when you're fighting a battle. Um, they put their worship leaders out at the front, and they walk towards the enemy, singing, you know, the Lord is good, his love endures forever. And their enemies are totally defeated. They attack each other, and they're totally defeated. There's a success that comes because God's power is at work to give them success. And so the mighty power of God, I want to say, it puts us on the offensive. Actually, the reason that the Son of God appeared, John says in his first letter, was to destroy the devil's work. Not just to stand, but to destroy. And we get to be part of that. 
So here are some things that put us on the offensive. First of all, the shoes of gospel readiness. Now, I don't know when you read this, um, when it says, put on the shoes of gospel readiness. We can read that as, like, always be ready to share the gospel. Yes, absolutely valid interpretation. But you could also read it as, there's a readiness that comes from the fact that we have the gospel of peace, right? What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that we live in this incredibly safe, assured place. Whatever happens to me physically, emotionally, God has got me and my destiny is sure. Whatever happens, there's a, there's a huge assurance that comes from that. And so I, you know, I can be ready to respond to anything because if it costs me, you know, if, if Caroline and I are called to go somewhere else in the world and it costs us our house, you know, which we spent a fair amount of time making plans to adapt for flow and all of that, well, that's okay. In the big scheme of things, it doesn't matter. There's a readiness. If God calls you to go and say something to a friend and you think, well, yeah, I might talk to them about Jesus and they might just turn around and say, oh, you're one of those God botherers and never speak to me again. Yeah, it's true. It's possible. It's unlikely, but possible. But you can be ready because at the end of the day, in the big scheme of things, that doesn't matter. Not as much as sharing the good news with them, at least. There's a readiness and a quickness to respond that comes because we have the gospel and that is the most valuable thing. And so what does anything else matter? Why does it matter if we undergo hardship? Why does it matter if we find ourselves temporarily um, in, a, in a place that's uncomfortable? If we've got the gospel and there's a readiness and a quickness about responding to God if we really get the gospel. And then, of course, there's the other way around. We're ready to give the gospel. And ultimately, that gets to the very root of things because the gospel, Paul tells in, 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 the, in the book of Romans, that's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who will believe. If we really want to see change, if we really want to see the evil forces of this world overcome, the gospel is the power. And being ready to give the gospel to people, that's the, that's the powerful thing. That's what overcomes. So there we go, the shoes of gospel readiness. The shield of faith. How does faith extinguish the attacks of the enemy? The, the passage says, if you've got it in front of you, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Well, I want to give you an example. Psalm 11. This is an extract from Psalm 11. This is obviously something that David has heard or heard said to him. Flee like a bird to your mountain, for look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's a despairing word for you, isn't it? There's a flaming dart from the evil one. It's even got arrows in it. I liked that one. Okay, this is what David actually says. This is Psalm 11, just, just expanding it, verse either side. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in hearts. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. It goes on. I haven't got the rest of the psalm there. That's, that's a response of faith, isn't it? They don't see the Lord in his temple necessarily. They certainly don't see him on his heavenly throne very often. But they, in faith, say, no, that's how it is. So how can you say to me this discouraging thought? It doesn't, it doesn't land with me. Because I have faith that God is who he says he is, and I'm going to trust him. That's the shield of faith in action against despair. And then we have the sword of the Spirit, God's words. Look, Scripture's our go-to on this, isn't it? 
when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and, and Satan tempts him in all kinds of ways to chuck his mission and go for the easy route, he just brings out scripture. It's written this. It's written this. It's written this. He knows the word of God and it's like a sword in his hand. But actually this, this sword can be inspired words of God as well. It doesn't just have to be those that have been written. Um, I gave an example earlier that I, um, I've spoken about before of a colleague of Caroline's called Fahana who was in a car accident um, and was, had the lowest possible brain activity score that she could. We weren't sure if we could pray for her to be healed. We didn't quite know if that was really something we had faith for. And God spoke a word and he said, this sickness will not end in death. It's actually a quote from a, um, a different story in scripture. But he just spoke that word. And out of it, we were like, okay, well, we have faith to pray for this now. And we did. And little by little, her brain activity increased until finally she reached the top of that score and she was recovered. There's a word that God can speak that is like a sword. And you can hold on to it and you can push ahead in it because God's spoken it. And obviously the most reliable one of those is scripture because we know that God's spoken it. There's no issue with did we really hear God right. But when God speaks a word, it's like a sword in the hand. Okay. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in his mighty power. Paul goes next into, and, and pray. Pray in the spirit on all occasions, is what he says. You know, this is still actually part of being strong in God's mighty power, because I don't know if you, you may have heard this story before. I tried to find the source of it, and I couldn't. But I've heard it from enough different people that I'm willing to share it. Um, of a guy who was woken up in the night and felt this burden to pray. And then suddenly he looked, and there were angels all around his bed. And as he started praying, one by one, they disappeared. And he's like, what's going on there? And suddenly he realized that as he prayed, God was dispatching angels to do his bidding. God's bidding, of course. There was a power in his prayer. And suddenly he was like, oh, goodness. It, it, it settled in his heart. There's a significance about when I pray. It's not, oh, am I putting in the hours? It's like, no. This is having an effect in the heavenlies. In the book of Revelation, there's this amazing picture where the, the prayers of the saints are offered like incense in a bowl and then they're gathered and, and, and coals from the altar are thrown to the earth and there's this huge effect on the earth in response to the prayers of the saints. So Paul says, pray in the Spirit. And what do I mean by pray in the Spirit? Well, let him lead when we pray. I don't know if you've been in meetings where everyone lists off all the things that we want to pray for and you kind of write them all down and then you try you sort of do this memory exercise to make sure you don't forget anyone. But you basically say all the same things that you've just said, but you put dear God at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm, I'm judging from the laugh that you've been in those prayer meetings as well. I don't want to disrespect um, prayer. I want to say there's something more than that, which is letting the Spirit lead. There's this wonderful time when um, uh, J, uh, John and Peter have been imprisoned, and they're released miraculously, and they get back to this prayer meeting that's going, that's going on and, they, and they've been persecuted and they're like, how do we pray? And the Spirit inspires them with this scripture. Why do the nations plot in vain? You know, they lift themselves up against the Holy One of Israel and they, they, they see the connection between that prophecy and what's just happened with Jesus Christ being conspired against. And then they say, and off the back of that, God, would you empower us with boldness to preach your word? Would you send uh, your hand out to do miracles so that the name of Jesus would be lifted up? There's this sudden sort of wind of the spirit amongst them and they pray with faith. And then the place that they were meeting in is shaken. 
and they're filled with boldness. Dump the shopping list, particularly when you're praying with people. Let the Spirit lead. If somebody starts praying something, you go, yes, I agree with that. Then, then say, okay, God, where, where next? What am I going to pray next off the back of that? And then when you've run out of stuff to pray, God will have inspired somebody else. And, and that way, when you get to the end, not only will you have prayed for what was on God's heart, but you'll also be aligned with God's heart in the process, rather than just having that same shopping list. Now, I'm not saying it's not good to pray faithfully for things and to keep lists. Do that, please. Do make sure you pray for people. In fact, Paul's keen. He says, look, pray for all the Lord's people and pray particularly for me that I proclaim the gospel boldly. So, he, you know, there is a place for that. But, but don't let it become dry and, you know, mechanical because the Spirit inspires us. In fact, Paul in Romans 8 says we, we don't even know what to pray half the time and the Spirit, you know, inspires us with words that, you know, groans that words can't even express. There's praying in tongues as well, isn't there? Which, you know, when, when you don't know what to pray, and, and goodness knows we end up in situations like that, don't we? Where you just go, God, I, should I pray for this? Should I pray for that? Should I pray for, for healing or just that God will be with them while they go through this? Or, in all of that, sometimes you just go, I don't know what to pray, so just going to pray out in the language of the Spirit. And, and God knows. And he enables us to pray. So do that. Do that. Make that a regular part of your prayer life, to pray in tongues, to let your spirit speak to God's spirit without having to be translated through words that can't always capture it all and through a mind that doesn't always understand it all. And listen, what's God saying as we pray? Because actually he might well be saying that we need to pray in a different way or he might well be calling us to just stop on this one thing and actually push through for breakthrough. But let's pray in the spirit. And I touched on praying in company there, but this is the last thing that I want to say, really, is be strong together. Because all of these commands that are given, they're plural commands. We don't have a difference between you and you in English. Those of you who study languages will know that's not the case in most languages. There's a difference between you singular, just you, Steve, and you plural, everybody here. There's a difference, and and all of the verbs throughout this entire passage are you, all of you, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You, all of you, put on the full armor of God so that you, all of you, can stand in that day of evil against the devil's schemes. All of you. There's a plural. Part of that is in praying together. Part of it is in helping each other to use the armor. There was a... um, great passage where David, King David, is just feeling a bit discouraged. He's had all these promises of God that he's going to be king, and yet he's been driven out by Saul, and he's on the run for his life, and he's surrounded by this ragtag bunch of mercenaries who, you know, they're with him because they haven't got anything going for them, more than anything else, at least to start with. And in the midst of all of that, understandably feeling a bit discouraged. It says, Saul's son Jonathan went to David and helped him to find strength in God. Didn't just give him a pep talk. Helped him to find strength in God. Pointed him back to the Lord. We get to stand together partly in encouraging each other. When that person's feeling weak, you know, the helmet of salvation, it's for real. You are saved. That's not in question. Put it back on. Come on. The breastplate of righteousness. Yeah, you fell down there. Do you know what? That's true. Your righteousness isn't dependent on what you've done. It's dependent on what Christ has done. Do you trust it? Put it back on. The angst that we sometimes feel in our prayer life, 
the worries that we feel about whether we're living right, the distance that we feel, the doubts that come, all of that goes, and we're face to face with Jesus. That's where we're headed. And there's an absolute certainty about that. It's not up for grabs. It's not up for debate. That's where we're headed. That's the most certain thing. And in all of that, what does standing look like? Does it look like worldly success? Does it look like feeling great all the time? No, it doesn't. Because there's no place in that for martyrs. What about people who have died of cancer in the Lord? What about people who have died in car accidents in the Lord? Have they succumbed to flaming arrows of the evil one? No, they haven't. They have stood and they have persevered until their end came. That's not failure. That's not falling. Falling is when we lose sight of God and then we end up making some massive moral failure and walking away from him. That's falling. Or where we put on stuff that isn't the armour of God and walk about in it for the rest of our lives because we believe it more than we believe that Christ is our righteousness. That's falling. We need to refix our eyes on the truth, which is that the author and the perfecter of our faith died on a cross while everyone around him mocked him and thought he'd failed. That was, that was how it ended for many people. Those who didn't trust in his resurrection, that was how it ended. They thought he'd failed. They thought he'd been a failure militarily because he'd been crucified by the Romans. They thought he'd failed as a Jew because he had been morally shamed by being hung on a cross. He was a failure to them. And yet we know, like Dan reminded us, that he was raised from the dead, that he overcame death, that he came back to renew and refresh and restore his disciples, to commission them, and then he rose into heaven, and now he is at the right hand of God, interceding for us constantly. And he is glorified, and one day he's coming back to bring that glory back to earth in all its fullness. But the thing is, at the moment, we're not there yet. So our standing is living in between the fact that Christ has done it, and it looked like a failure to lots of people, And the fact that when he comes back, it's going to be seen as the success it was. And we get to live in that gap, which means that sometimes standing might look like failure to the people around us. Sometimes standing won't look like worldly success, but if we get God's perspective, it is. Our resurrection is still to come. I just want to read to you from Hebrews 11. Many of you will know Hebrews 11 is a bit of a sort of a gallery of faith champions from the Bible. And it finishes like this. What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah or David, Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouth of the lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. There's success that looks like success. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. But then there's other ones, right? There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Some were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went around in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Now, that's all mentioned in one breath. Those who, for them, success and standing was overcoming things and seeing things torn down that shouldn't have been there. And those for whom overcoming was 
standing firm to the end in the face of persecution and difficulty and hardship. That's all in one breath because both of those are success in the eyes of God. So I said I had a second question for you. Question number one was, what does it look like for you? What situations are you in where all you need to do is just stand, remind yourself of what Christ has done and live in the good of it? Question number two is, what things do you need a word from God? Where are the situations where you want to see kingdom victory, where God's calling you to break through together with others? What are the situations where God wants you to overcome 